Hello, my name is Chris Casey with Windrock Wealth Management. Thank you for joining us for our webinar entitled Negative Interest Rates, Explanations, and Repercussions. The genesis of this webinar derives from the fact that we believe there's been a real dearth of adequate analysis and assessment of this phenomena of negative interest rates, which we've seen really develop and expand over the last two years. While the financial media may describe negative interest rates, they may have some commentator on who will say it's even impossible or theoretically impossible. In our minds, there hasn't been a well-rounded discussion of how negative interest rates fit into the banking system, the concept of fractional reserve banking, the nature of interest rates themselves from a theoretical standpoint, and ultimately what this means for the economy, for the financial markets, and for investors as well. So let's begin with the description of fractional reserve banking. It's something that many people are familiar with, but surprisingly, a lot of people are not, including people who work for banks. They may not even think that banks actually create money, and they do by virtue of the fractional reserve banking system. So by fractional reserve, we simply mean that banks are legally enabled to loan out against demand deposits. Now that from a, from a contractual perspective, should not be allowed, right? Because on the one hand, they're telling depositors, yes, if you have a checking account, if you have a demand account where you can demand your money at any given time and we are stand ready to pay it, at the same time, they're lending money, that money out to actual uh, borrowers. And so inherently, there's something wrong. And the reason this exists in the banking system, because the banking system you know, it's effectively in that regard, a warehouse for money. It's no different than grain elevators or warehouses for any other good uh, throughout history. The reason this happened is that throughout the 19th century, there were a series of court cases in England and in America that gave banks a different treatment. Effectively, if you have a demand deposit under the law, it should be the concept of a bailment where they're in possession of someone else's property. But unfortunately, it became a creditor relationship. So that's the nature of fractional reserve banking. Now, in the United States, for every dollar that's deposited, the bank can go ahead and lend out 90 cents of that. They have a 10% reserve requirement. Other countries have different requirements. And what that means is that for every, if that 90 cents then is lent out, you know, Joe deposits a dollar, 90 cents is lent out to Mike, and Mike eventually goes ahead and deposits that 90 cents in another bank. Well, they can lend out 90% of that 90 cents. And on it goes through this multiplier effect where effectively banks can increase the money supply by the inverse factor of the reserve requirement for demand deposits. So that's just another way of saying that for a 10% reserve requirement, banks can effectively expand the money supply that's within demand deposits by 10 times. So that is... The magnitude of that is not commonly understood by financial commentators or the public at large. While everyone's focused on the Federal Reserve and what they're doing for the money supply, not enough emphasis is focused on banks. And banks can be extremely powerful and unpredictable element of the overall money supply. Now, I just want to put this in perspective as to how low a 10% reserve requirement is. And we've all been to an airport before. And you're sitting at the gate and they have that announcement, hey, we're overbooked. Would you mind giving up your seat? And if not, we're going to have to kick someone off. And it's extremely frustrating. No one's in a good mood if there's no takers voluntarily. Um, and what we're talking about is really 
a pretty high reserve requirement. So for instance, a bank may book, may, they may have 100 seats. I'm sorry, bank, I meant to say an airline. They, an airplane may have 100 seats and they booked 110 tickets. So they effectively have a 90.9% reserve requirement for the tickets that they booked. Well, that's pretty high. Imagine what happened if they had a 10% requirement. That would mean, you know, a thousand people would show up for a flight and they only have 100 seats. So you can see the, the magnitude of fractional reserve banking and its, and its power, really, as it relates to causing disruption and expanding uh, the money supply. Now, let's talk about the nature of bank profits. Because of the fractional reserve banking system, banks are unique unlike other businesses in that every business may use financial leverage, right? They're using other people's money to accomplish some kind of goal in their normal course of business. Well, banks are not only using other people's money and lending that out, they're lending out people's money that they're not, from a theoretical standpoint, supposed to be lending out. It's money that they promise to pay back, the money that's on demand, the demand deposits. So because of that, banks are extremely sensitive to credit rate defaults. If they go up significantly, it can cause insolvency. It can certainly lower profits significantly. And this is why banks, you will have banking crashes, why you have system-wide failures in a banking crisis, whether it's the SNL uh, issue from the early 90s or the 08 crisis. Banks are highly leveraged entities, which sounds obvious, obvious but when you look to it is in the context of fractional reserve banking, it's even worse than you think. The other item to keep in mind is that interest rate spreads are the key to profitability. Let's just talk about an example. Theoretically, if a bank has $100 in assets and they have to pay 8% to a depositor for those, but they're lending out at 10, well, the bank's going to make $2 on that transaction. But what if you have interest rate compression? What if those rates fall to where they're borrowing at 1% and they're paying out at 2? Well, they're making $1 on that transaction and you know, bank profits have fallen by 50% with the same asset base. That's a very simplistic example. It leaves out a lot of variables, but it shows that the tighter the margin or what they would call the, the net interest rate margin, the tighter that spread between what they're lending out and what they're, and, and what they're borrowing at can really affect a bank's profitability. Now, when I mentioned earlier that there hasn't been a proper discussion of negative interest rates. Part of the reason is that they rarely talk about the concept of interest rates themselves. So what are these? And too often you hear people say, oh, interest rates are the price of money. And that's actually kind of a Keynesian concept in a way. And you hear this quite frequently. And intuitively that, make, that sounds right. You know, hey, I, I'm going to borrow money. I got to pay for it. It's kind of the price of money. But that's, it's not correct at all. When you look at it from the perspective of what would happen in a barter economy, so let's say money didn't exist. Let's say you're a farmer. So farmer Mike wants to borrow a hoe uh, to perform some tilling or whatever they do with a hoe. And he borrows from the neighbor, uh, farmer Mike, and he says, okay, I'd like to use this hoe for the growing season. And when I return it, I'll return in the same condition. I'll pay you back, you know, uh, two chickens and some of the grain that I'm going to grow. Uh, by cultivating this land. Well, right there you have an interest rate, which is simply the discount of a future good against a present good. So interest rates exist apart from that of the money supply. They exist as part of the, of the economy in general, 
regardless as to whether or not we're using dollars or, or some other kind of monetary unit. Simply because the price is expressed in monetary terms doesn't mean it's the price of money. We, we in fact, price all goods and services in terms of money. Uh, and so interest rates are no different than any other price in that regard. And interest rates do not reflect liquidity preferences, which is just, a, I guess, a fancier way of saying the price of money. The Keynesians and a lot of policymakers, Keynesian economists and policymakers in general, will state that in times of uncertainty, people will want to hold greater cash balances. Um, and so interest rates are really a reflection of the desire to hold money. Well, we already saw from the, the barter example with the hoe, but that's not what happens because interest rates would have would would exist apart from that of money and interest rates in effect and this is a great quote here by doug french who's a who wrote a very nice and concise article on interest rates he's the former president of ludwig von mises institute he said while lenders may think they're lending money they're really lending time present goods are more valuable than future goods borrowers buy the use of time and that's exactly correct uh the austrian school of economics uh, understands that interest rates are a reflection of time preferences. So if you have a high time preference, that means you wish to have you wish to have immediate satisfaction, immediate ends uh, to achieve goals. And so uh, high time high time preferences often reflect in society, in general, high interest rates because there's a dearth of savings. Um, no one wants to put uh, savings. Um, or save money for the future. They would rather have the immediate good right now than they have a future good and more of it, substantially more potentially, down the road. And so time preferences truly uh, underpin the entire concept of interest rates. You throw in things like expectations as to price levels, uh, expectations as to credit risks, you know, the element of time for different time periods. And suddenly you have, based on time preferences, a structure of interest rates uh, over a period of time. And this is, of course, I'm talking about from a free market perspective without any kind of intervention from central banks, etc. Now, an important thing to, to keep in mind because of this interest rate discussion and because of their ultimately, their foundation lying in time preferences, that means you cannot, from a theoretical standpoint, have negative interest rates. They will not exist in the free market. And because if you did, what you're effectively saying is that people will forever go forego consumption and the in their ends. They will forever go forego the goals that they wish. Now some people may quibble and say, well listen, that's that's not exactly correct. Uh, it's July and um, I don't need ice. Or I'm sorry, I don't need uh, or it's winter and I don't need ice or ice cream right now. I, I'd rather have it in the summer. But that's 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 not exactly correct because ice cream or ice in the winter is actually a different good. Uh, as it relates to its context than it would be in the summer. And so we're not talking about that. We're in, besides, it's kind of a, a unique anomalous uh, uh, concept. But really what we're talking about are time preferences for goods in general. They reflect uh, the desire for immediate satisfaction or more immediate satisfaction than otherwise. So although interest rates should not exist or cannot exist from a theoretical perspective on a free market, they obviously exist today. And let's just talk about how they've come to pass over the last two years and, and grown. I mean, today we're looking at over, I think it's about $11 trillion in debt instruments which have negative interest rates. And so they're 
whenever you buy these, if you buy with negative interest rates, you know you're going to lose money. You're not making money. And that's probably, I'm guessing, around 25% of the, the debt market in general. So it's, it's a huge number right now. It's primarily concentrated in Japan and Europe. And let's just talk about how it's grown over the last two years. So initially, we saw negative interest rates as related to the secondary sovereign market. So for instance, um, Germany issues a debt instrument. Uh, someone buys it. Two years go by, you know, it's a 30-year debt instrument. Someone buys it from that person on the secondary market, and they pay such a price that they know they're going to get less money in return. So it reflects a negative interest rate. So that's where we first saw these, Switzerland, Japan, Germany. Then we moved to corporate bonds. You had all of a sudden blue chip entities like Nestle and some others start issuing bonds where they're actually getting paid to borrow money. Then, even more egregious, we started having new sovereign issuances. So you had Germany, Switzerland, Japan, actually, instead of just on the secondary market where they're buying and selling these bonds and they go for negative interest rates based on the price they're paying, on the new issuance market, you actually have governments issuing bonds and getting paid to borrow people's money, which is staggering. And now finally, we, we see this flowing into the banks and at the retail level where customers are actually getting charged uh, to have deposits at the bank. So now in negative interest rates are affecting them. So why do we have this? Why, why are interest rates negative? Why are they so, uh, the, why are they so uh, uh, significant as far as their magnitude and their breadth within the markets? Why is this occurring right now? And it's really twofold. One, it's because central banks can. Central banks are unconstrained in their ability to enter the markets and bid up asset values to the point where negative interest rates are ex in existence. Another point is that policymakers and central banks are desperate. They're extremely concerned about where the economy is uh, where, and where the economy will be, but for their intervention with suppressing interest rates to an artificially low level. Uh, so they're, they're extremely desperate as well. And finally, you have a great deal of fear among uh, uh, people seeking safe havens as to where to put their money. So they would rather... Uh, have lose money and, and know that you get the principal back at some point in time, less a, a certain carrying charge, uh, rather than put it to work in what they would perceive as a riskier asset. So negative interest rates, again, should not exist in a free market from a theoretical standpoint. They clearly derive from central bank intervention in the marketplace, and they derive, and, and they, their phenomena has been expressed in today's day and age because of global weakness, because of the unconstrained limits on central banks, and because of the fear of, of various actors within the financial community itself. So let's talk about the impact of negative interest rates really on banks. How are banks affected by these? And as we saw before, they are affected by credit defaults. They're affected by the interest rate spreads. Uh, and over the last year, if you look at, say, Europe, which has you know, the majority of negative interest rates within the world, we see that bank profits year to date, as well as stock prices based on various indices for banks have fallen by a third, both prices and, and their underlying stock values. Um, this is extremely significant. The, the most uh, extreme example is Deutsche Bank, which is a famous bank. It's as of today, the fourth largest bank within the economy, uh, based on uh, within Europe, based on asset size. And look at what their stock price has done. In 2014, it was down by 32%. 
in 15 by 17, in 16 by 40%. So just absolute staggering decreases in their stock prices, staggering profit losses across the board. Negative interest rates clearly, if you look at Europe, if you look at Japan, have added extreme amount of stress in the banking system and have set the stage for a massive crisis, banking crisis throughout the those continents or those areas. Let's talk about those repercussions in a little bit more detail. I just alluded to bank failures. And here's actually a famous scene um, in It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey is pleading with people not to withdraw their money. Um, by the way, that would not happen in a uh, free market where banks were Obviously, they would not be permitted to have anything less than 100% reserve requirement on demand deposits, meaning they would be obligated to actually do what they say they can do. And so that would not happen. Uh, it's merely because of government intervention allowing them to have a fractional reserve uh, system that, that these things, these bank runs can happen. So the repercussions clearly would lead to bank failures. You know, we would expect them to potentially increase to the extent that the negative interest rate phenomena increases in breadth and, and magnitude. It should be noted that deflation, while, and we have an article on our website regarding deflation, why it's commonly misunderstood and unnecessarily feared, potentially, uh, deflation is very feared by uh, policymakers. They view it as the reason for economic, uh, severe economic uh, declines, such as the Great Depression. And deflation, it should be noted, may appear from the bank failures. Uh, if they continue and they increase, the reason being is the fractional reserve system, right? So as banks lend out money, they increase the money supply. Well, the same is true in the reverse. To the extent that banks are, or, I'm sorry, loans are either defaulted on or they're repaid out of fear uh, on, a, on an accelerated basis, that causes a decrease in the money supply and can lead to deflation. So a takeaway here is that policymakers and central banks are extremely concerned about deflation. If it occurs, because of their own doing, by the way, because they're causing negative interest rates, thereby causing a potential banking crisis, thereby causing potentially deflation, I would expect it to be brief because they're all, because of their fear, expecting to counteract that as vigorously as possible with printing more dollars. And whether it's so-called helicopter money, however they distribute it into the economy, I would expect, based on their fear of inflation, which may appear because of a banking crisis, that they will accelerate those efforts. So we've we've been saying this for years that investors should expect kind of a, a whipsaw effect where you could lead to a brief bout of deflation, which rapidly extends to accelerated inflation. Um, it also will lead to a continued war on cash. And what, the reason I say it's continued is because it's been a long time in, in coming, but it's picked up steam lately by various policymakers. Um, and professors, et cetera, arguing for a continued war on cash. And what I mean by that is the, the effective banning of cash from transactional usage. And so it comes in a number of different ways. It could come in the, the simply outline uh, the use of, of cash in certain transactions. It can come from potentially a, some type of uh, surcharge on withdrawing money from a bank. Okay, so they can make it effectively difficult. It can come from changing the denominations or maybe even stop printing them. For instance, it wasn't that long ago the U.S. had a $1,000 bill. So it wasn't until 1969 that the $1,000 bill was outlawed. And before that, I think they stopped printing them in 1945. So 
just by simply by virtue of not creating more, they're effectively making it more difficult to utilize cash. And this denomination aspect is a big deal because as you have inflation, even a mild inflation will over time you know, grossly erode at the value of a dollar. In fact, it's down you know, 87% since 1971, the value of a single dollar. And so because of that, a $100 bill back in 1971 is worth significantly less, which means we need higher denominations even more than ever. So expect this war in cash to continue. You know, one this quote I forgot to mention when I was discussing the likely um, the likely response of policymakers in the in the in the context of a potential for a, a brief deflation. This is a de- Treasury Department spokesperson. I thought it was pretty interesting when when asked how they picked the initial bailout under TARP was six hundred billion dollars, which is a staggering amount of money. And and this is literally their response. So it's showing that. They not only do they fear deflation, they will do anything it takes as far as printing new dollars or lending new money to do so. But there's not really a plan, and they will go to any extreme on an ad hoc basis. And this is literally what they said. It's not based on any particular data point. We just wanted to choose a really large number. And, of course, they, they chose larger numbers down the road. So in conclusion, um, negative interest rates are, are a very unique phenomena. Their magnitude and breadth until in the last couple of months is the growth has been staggering. Its influence upon the financial community is staggering and its potential repercussion for banks can be quite significant. If we have a banking crisis, I think we can expect a, a brief bout of deflation, a continued war on cash. And, and that's, by the way, the war on cash is necessary to prevent people from taking more money out and causing these bank runs and a very unstable situation, uh, which leads to Uh, some investment considerations that we're happy to talk to you about. But um, that is it for negative interest rates. Thank you for joining me today.